It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd, where we talk about a variety of things, current events, history, science, sometimes even some fiction. We're here tonight in a very special night with a very special pair of guests, Rick Perlstein, who is arguably the uh, greatest contemporary historian among popular writers in the United States today, and Digby, who is arguably the most important opinion writer in the country. So we're having them both together. They've got a long-standing relationship, and I would thought it'd be fun to have them talk to each other tonight. Digby, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Jay. Rick, it's so wonderful that you could come back after Nixon Land. We're very grateful for that. By the way, folks, we're here talking about, of course, Rick's new book, The Invisible Bridge, um, the third in a trio of books discussing the way in which conservatism has grown in the United States. Extraordinary book, including Nixon Land. I'm sure you should read it. And Rick actually joined us to talk about Rick's Nixon Land last time around. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dick. Hey, Jay and Rick and everybody else. Nice to be here. How are you doing, Rick? Hey, Digby. Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you, too. I've been seeing you all over TV. It's very exciting. Someday it's going to be you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I'm not much of a TV person, but you're doing great. Thank you. You're You're always very entertaining. I'm excited to see you on there. And I just, you know, I have to say that I just, I love this book. I, of course, loved... Uh, Before the Storm, uh, your great book about the Goldwater campaign and the and the genesis of the modern conservative movement, and then of course Nixonland, and this one, which is kind of especially dear to my heart because of the period, because I was you know I was there it, you know, as a fully sentient, almost grown up person. I was a late teenager uh, during this period, and uh, it. It's very immediate to me. In fact, this period was uh, the time of my real political awakening. I had been, you know, I'd grown up in a political household. We talked politics. I'd been aware of everything that was going on. But this was the period when I really started thinking, you know, very independently. And it was an exciting period in in American political history. I mean, we had Watergate, the end of the Vietnam War. You know, I mean, this was a very... Uh, interesting period, and so this book was very—I um, don't know—it felt very intimate to me in in reading this. So I'm I'm thrilled that you that you of all people were the person to sort of chronicle this era and to particularly chronicle it the way that you do. And I want to talk to you first about that. I, you know, would, but people had there are different ways of doing history. Uh, yours is very special in my view, and, I, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your method. 
because, you know, when I was in school and in college during that period, that, you know, Marshall McLuhan was a really big deal then. You know, we were all just kind of <laughs> worshipping him. He was kind of a guru, right? And right. his, his um, you know, his thing was the media is the message, right? And yeah. your method, it, it, you, know, in, you know, it actually embraces that concept and uses the media of the period that you're talking about to um, illustrate what people were thinking. And I find that just really, really fun to read. It makes it very immediate. And in the, the, because of the era that you're chronicling from the mid-60s right. on up, you know, media was exploding during that period. So, you yeah, know, right. I think everybody would be interested. I mean, we'll get into the meat of the book. we got a whole hour. But I just want to hear, I think people would be interested in hearing how you do this. How do you go and get right. all these amazing anecdotes? Right. Well, first of all, uh, thanks, to be, thanks, thanks for doing this and thanks for being here. And I'm really glad you bring up the idea of this period, which people think of, you know, as kind of ultimately kind of uh, insipid and scary and kind of not interesting or whatever as some, a time that was politically exciting. I want to get back to that, this idea of uh, this period of 1973 to 1976 and Watergate and all, and, and all this stuff as a time of amazing civic engagement. That's a very important theme of the book. But to just get to talking about um, why I write the way I do and how I write the way I do, um, some people hate it, and I've really started to get um, a backlash. Uh, against, you know, I think it's fair to say um, sort of establishment-type voices, um, the National Interest, which is kind of a neocon uh, journal, uh, just came out with a review that calls my writing spastic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sam Tannenhaus, who used to be the editor of the New York Times Book Review, and thank God isn't anymore, um, really, really got my goat. And I've been thinking about this because I wrote a letter to the editor um, to sort of push back against his negative review in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, and I wrote about this quote of his, if, if I may. Uh, his first book drew on more than a dozen archival collections, which is good, right, he has since adopted the methodology of a web, the web aggregator. His preferred sources are digitally accessed news clippings and TV shows. Some might find this intellectually lazy, but Pearlstein proudly Googles in the name of grassroots activism. Oh, my God. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I don't either, but it sure but, sounds um, bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, but, you know, I, I, what I end up saying is what really seems to irk him, and I honestly have no idea why, is that, you know, the most massive part of my research is reading and studying the newspaper articles and magazine articles and radio shows and TV shows that ordinary Americans uh, consume because my subject is how the political consciousness of ordinary Americans change. And the medium, the media is not only the, the message, it's the archive. Uh, you can basically uh, put your brain in the same place that someone's brain was in 1973 when you watch the same TV show, which is you know, kind of 90% of how people can consume politics. And that's very important to me. Um, you know, there's backroom stuff. There's some in every political history. But what's most fascinating to me is the voter, us. Uh, why did this guy, you know, kind of come out of obscurity and ridicule? 
this is Ronald Reagan, to seem like mm-hmm. someone who made sense as a leader for the country. And there's no way of understanding that except through um, media. And basically um, how I do it, uh, well, the most interesting part of it um, is um, there's a place called the Vanderbilt News Archives in Nashville, Tennessee. And if I could, I'd just you know, move to Nashville and do all my historical research there <laughs> because they have every newscast of all three networks since 1968 fully cataloged and archived. And it's like, it's basically like going to a time machine. It's like the magic YouTube, you know, where you can kind of see exactly, like if your uncle, you know, kind of made it on the, you know, evening news in 1977 for his, you know, cuckoo clock collection, you know, you can go there (laughs) and find it and watch it, uh, you know, in the time it takes to call up a YouTube clip. And as a matter of fact, um, the networks are so proprietary about this stuff and they consider it kind of their property, even though really it is our cultural patrimony, that it's a miracle that this place exists. Uh, it's an amazing story, Digby. Um, this wingnut um, from uh, Tennessee decided that the media was too liberal and decided to kind of document it. He got a very early VCR and started recording it, and eventually he donated this to his alma mater, Vanderbilt, but in order to kind of turn this into a public resource, they literally had to have Senator Howard Baker write an exception into copyright law. And you can wow. go there and you can see it. And if you're doing a, a documentary, you can even use this footage, although it's exorbitantly expensive because they charge huge licensing fees. Um, but, you know, while you're there, um, you can basically go back in time and watch this stuff. You know, and there's also plenty of stuff on YouTube and more all the time. Uh, I also spent time at uh, the Paley Center in New York, which is also one in Los Angeles, which has a very limited collection of mostly CBS News and CBS programming. And that's where I kind of watched a lot of the Watergate hearings and John Dean's testimony, although that's very limited. Strangely enough, um, and I have a friend who's kind of worked on this, uh, he's kind of a foundation executive, there's very little of our television history that's been preserved. I mean, you know about film history and how um, you know, delicate that is, but basically this stuff was seen as, the tapes were just seen as worthless and they were taped over. Um, and there is, that I can tell as a historian, no existing complete uh, visual record of the Senate Watergate hearing, the Urban Committee hearing. Really? Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Jeff Boyce, who works at the MacArthur Foundation, tried to do some research on the Murphy-Brown debate, you know, in 1990s, you know, when Dan sure. Quayle said Murphy-Brown was a terrible influence on America, and he just couldn't get a hold of any of this stuff. Um, so I do my, the best I can. And, uh, you know, obviously the principle of it is not only populist and kind of understanding, but uh, populist and kind of making this stuff available. So I did this thing where I put my notes online and wherever there's a YouTube clip that I can get a hold of, of say Ronald Reagan giving a famous speech, I, I link it. Because I want to convey the experience of what it was like to live during this time with, of course, the historian's prerogative of understanding it in hindsight. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's funny because I what you said earlier about experiencing this, you know, at the time, how we 
how we did and how much civic engagement there was. I mean, you, I'm so surprised that anyone would criticize you using this, using the, these resources that we have available to convey that because well, if you're that a was... you're you go in the, the archives, right? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what's the difference? This is just a modern... This is just a modern version. I mean, this is and, – and to be able to access that and look at it, the Watergate hearings, for instance, I mean, that was a national obsession. And I was yeah. there. I watched them all. It was like soap operas. Yeah, 85% of households – and I didn't put this in the book, and I wish I had. John Dean told it to me personally. 85% of the households in America tuned in when he testified in June of 1973. Well, I mean – I believe it. I know in my household, and you know, I mean, this was I was I was still a, a student at the time, a high school student at the time. But I mean, we were. I would sit in front of the TV all day long, as if you know, I was watching. I don't know the World Series or the World Cup or something. You know, I mean, this was an it was a national obsession. Everybody right. was talking about it, and I remember right. still the day that Alexander Butterfield dropped the bomb that they had taped everything, and it was like yeah. a shockwave went through the whole Literally country. Literally the drop on the tape. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was um, so riveting, and I also tried to convey that. That's a, a very important part of the book, what it was in people that you trusted to run the country reveal that basically mafioso. You know, the people, what it was like right. every day. And, right. you know, I have one friend who you know, Tom Gagan, his brother told me, he had an accident, and he was in traction all summer, and he was thrilled because all he wanted to do was watch the Watergate hearings anyway. <laughs> and, um, you know, another American who watched it every night when they would show, at first it was such a hot ticket, all three networks showed it. Every and they're like, this is crazy. We need to make some money. So they figured out a way to, to rotate the days. So it was like one day it would be ABC, then the next day it would be NBC, and the next day it would be CBS. Right. And then PBS would show the whole thing at night. And if you read uh, Dreams uh, from My Father, Barack Obama's book, he said that the first time he came to the mainland to travel with his grandparents, uh, they did a road trip, and every night when they would be you know, bedding down the Howard Johnsons, the whole family would sit and watch the, <laughs> the Watergate hearings on PBS. I don't well, think you learned a lot, as usual. But. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> no, many people That's didn't, and in the book time. you uh, – in the book, I think you tackle that question very, uh, very, very well, the idea of why that moment kind of went the direction that it did. Well, I mean, that's fascinating. The, the fact that you did this, I mean, I think it takes an awful lot of work to go and look, you know, I mean, you had to wade through a lot of, you know, dull weather reports, I'm sure, <laughs> to get to the meat of these things. But to me, that's no, what I'm makes lazy. the book so vivid. Dan houses, I'm lazy. <laughs> Yeah, you're lazy. Yeah, that's that that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, you know, he obviously he doesn't even have a clue. He said something about how you you were using crowdsourcing, and I'm going. He clearly does not know what crowdsourcing means because you did all this by yourself. Well, this I don't think you, you were. While, while, while we're talking about Santana House, you wrote a whole biography of Whitaker Chambers, and his source for Whitaker Chambers' entire childhood and youth is Whitaker Chambers' own memoir. Ah, and you know, Whitaker well, Chambers was a famous liar. So <laughs> talk about an unimpeachable source. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and I, you know, to me, that's what makes your your book so so great, and also the kind of the ability you have to kind of find these threads of you know cultural and social phenomenon that play into all of this that created the atmosphere of the time, and you know, you have to. Un I, I don't think that you can understand politics 
at least not very, you know, very deeply, if you don't understand that context. I mean, it's true then, it's true now. It, it, you know, there's, there's a whole lot that goes into that. And you're one of the few people who actually writes about that. You're not, you know, you, of course, write about the personalities of the day and, and, and do it very well and very uh, interestingly. But it's the, it's the atmosphere that you create that sort of gives an insight, I think, into the period, even for people like me who were, were living through it and, and I, I thought I understood it. But because, you know, I didn't see everything that you did in living through it. I actually was kind of living my life right. at the time and probably smoking more pot than I should have. Uh, so my, my view of the period may be a little bit fuzzy in some ways. So, uh, you know, a lot of what you bring into this kind of gives a context even for people who lived it and, and kind of shows it in a, in a different way. And, you know, I mean, I want to get into the, into the book itself and talk a little bit about what was going on. I mean, you, we talked about Watergate and of course that was a huge, uh, it was, it was a cataclysm in American politics. Very, very exciting. A civic lesson like we've never had, I don't think, before. Because, you know, if 85% right. of Americans were watching. It was well, hard. It was hard to follow that. There were so many names and the constitutional principles. Just the idea of, um, of you know, Nixon saying he's not letting these people testify because of executive privilege. These are hard constitutional issues. And people really studied up. You know, like the New York Times one day has a chart, you know, here are the key players in Watergate. And it's like 30 people. This was not, you know, Katie Couric and, you know, the evening news and news you can use. This was real eat your spinach kind of stuff. And it's a very important point I make in the book, right, that this period, not only that, but also the debate over the meaning of this war we had just lost, wasted 58,000 lives on, uh, and also the meaning of this, strange visitation from another planet, this idea of an energy shortage. No one right. knew energy was even a thing that you could have a shortage of, and suddenly we're, you know, like in, in, in hot to these, you know, third world desert shakes, you know. Um, there was this enormous level of engagement and debate over some kind of basic questions about America and its prospects and what it was and what it should be. And People talk about the 70s as kind of this really dumb period and disco and platform shoes, but I see it as a, a time of enormous democratic potential in which kind of the critical energies of the 60s really kind of begin working their way through the institutions of popular culture and even popular entertainment. Oh, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, politics, it seems to me, and, and I think you capture this well in the book, became sort of a central part of American life in a way that it just, you know, isn't very often. And and it yeah. wasn't just around the, you know, the entertainment value of some, you know, celebrity politician. It wasn't Camelot and it wasn't, you know, this was about the actual workings of government and how things that were going on behind the scenes. I mean, when you saw... I mean, you know, Watergate, the CIA, you know, abuse revelations, the, you know, the Vietnam War and everything that had come out about that with, you know, with the revelations in, in you know, in the Pentagon Papers. You know, this was a time when people were actually grappling with the reality of how these things worked and recognizing that there was something wrong, that, you know, America, the superpower... I don't know if we even called ourselves that then. Yeah, yeah, we are yeah I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that we were suddenly, and I, I heard you, yeah, yeah. I heard you talking about this the other day on TV, and you, you know, you pointed this out, and you said, you know, look, we were at a moment when we were grappling with the dark side, and and this is a good thing. It's like it was a maturing of of this country as a as a great power uh, and empire, if you were will, and looking at a, at casting a, a you know a light onto that and 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 showing a willingness to deal with it. And it was happening on a bipartisan basis. Watergate was a clear example of the right. government working together right. with media. It's almost you know, like, you know, it's really funny because you and I both kind of bitch a lot about the silliness of the cult of bipartisanship. But if you look at that House impeachment committee, bipartisanship really worked. And people yes. were solving problems together. Yes, I mean, it, it did work. And, it, and that's what legitimized what happened. I mean, that was a very strange thing to have a president resign and resign under those circumstances where he had been revealed you know, with, un, in no uncertain terms, to have, you know, basically committed criminal acts and abused his office terribly. And and he had been elected in a landslide. It wasn't like the guy had been, you know, just sort of slid into office like someone like George W. Bush. This guy had been really elected. And this, and uh, you know, just yep. two years later, we, the country was faced with the fact that this, they had been, they had been taken, you know, in a in a way, and and yeah. they and and they were and they were it's facing like it. We and then to look backwards instead of forward. <laughs> exactly, they looked in the rearview mirror and they gave it a good hard look, and it wasn't easy. And I think that you know, there, yeah, there was that sense that you know, oh, the institutions, there's uh, corruption and there's all these other things, but. You know, that was the maturing, that was the moment at which America could have matured as a, as, as then, a world power. Da, da, da. Uh-huh. We, that was unpleasant. <laughs> and we don't like unpleasantness. And guess who shows well, up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we had, but... We can't avoid it. Yeah, I mean, what did he say? He said, he said, uh, you know... He won't be named. What's that? He who shall not be named. Yes, he who shall not be named. I mean, you know, these, I guess, you know, and the book shows this. I mean, people were, neither party was addressing kind of the the sort of underlying angst that was going on, whether in the Republican side or on the, on the liberal side. And along comes somebody who allays all these concerns by saying, that's wrong. None of that is true. You can believe right. me or you can believe your lion eyes. We are the greatest country right. the world has ever known. We are exceptional. Right. And you don't have to think that anymore. You do not have to feel bad. And that is a potent little bit of political alchemy. And he was good at it, wasn't yeah. he? Yes. Well, my my favorite example of this is, so, you know, Ronald Wilson Reagan, you know, this, um, you know, kind of half, ass kind of the movie actor who, you know, manages to kind of put together this political career. Um, after he serves his two terms as governor, by the way, I'm being ironic. I don't think he's half ass. I think he's pretty extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm. uh, after his two terms as governor, he basically is keeping his national profile alive and speaking of the medium being the message, uh, Peter Hannaford and Michael Deaver, his handlers are like, well, what's, we got an offer to, to, to debate every week, uh, be the, you know, the, the conservative side of a debating 
feature every week on CBS Evening News. Let's do that. Do that. And Ronald Reagan says, no, if I'm on TV, people will tire of me. Let's do radio instead. And this is this brilliance he has at kind of watching him being watched by others, this incredible mastery of, of all media. He's the king of all media before Howard Stern came along. <laughs> and so he you know, basically becomes a uh, radio commentator and gives these five-minute what I call radio homilies, in which he kind of delivers what I call a, uh, a liturgy of absolution for all this stuff that people are supposed to be worried about. And I have this favorite example, and I have a, the book in front of me. So with your permission, I'm going to read my favorite radio show he did. Oh, please. Uh, which was in April of 1975. And, of course, we've lost the Vietnam War. Two years later, uh, in 1975, oh, we have to evacuate all our personnel because South Vietnam has fallen like a house of cards. This is this government we spent billions of dollars and 58,000 lives propping up propping up. Uh, the war is conclusively shown to have been a complete waste, a complete farce. How the hell is Ronald Reagan going to do, treat this, right? And so he um, gives a broadcast entitled Letters to the Editor. And by the way, um, much like what's going on now with the, the kids from Honduras and Guatemala, uh, all these refugees are pouring in from South Vietnam. And one of the things I uncovered in the book was they were not welcomed. Uh, there was insane amount of racism towards these poor people. And um, the chapter in which I document that is called Disease, Disease, Disease. <laughs> because this congressman from California with a military base where they're housing these people, because all people want to talk about is how diseased they are and how they're going to steal our jobs. I mean, these are the people who've been our allies, who fought by our side, who risked their lives uh, you know, to advance American foreign policy. So that's the context for Ronald Reagan giving this radio address. He says, in these times when so many of us have the tendency to lose faith in ourselves, it's good now and then to be reminded of the good-mannered, good-natured, generous spirit that has been the American characteristic as long as there has been in America. He then recounted a letter he claimed to have seen from an unnamed American missionary in Vietnam to an unidentified publication. He was very good at making stuff unchuckable. Um, <laughs> quote, the reverend described a 20-foot craft that drifts in the Gulf of Thailand with no fuel, no fu- food, no water, barely afloat, and sinking with its cargo of 82 refugees. Towering over it was the aircraft carrier, the USS Midway. The reference described the Midway as tired. It had already deposited some 2,000 refugees in other ships, refugees who had arrived in more than 500 flights. One flight was a light observation plane not designed for carrier landing. The midway had moved up to top speed to enable the pilot to land with an entire family jammed inside the tiny fuselage. There were 40 copters on the deck, brand-new F-5E fighters and A-37s that had carried people who preferred not to be liberated by the communists. Once on board, they had one question. Would they be handed over to an unfriendly government, perhaps eventually to be murdered? The executive officer of the ship told him this would not happen. He said, our job is to keep you as comfortable as possible, heal the sick, and feed you to your heart's content. That was the official policy of our nation and therefore of the midway. And then I say, 
We then describe the miracle of the loaves and fishes straight out of the gospel, according to Reader's Digest. Quote, <laughs> this is good old Reagan talking. A tiny baby with double ammonia was cured. People without clothes were given American clothing. Sailors took the old clothing and washed them for their guests. Pretty soon, homeless children were being given piggyback rides on the shoulders of American seamen, and Navy T-shirts bearing the midway decal began appearing on the little ones. Ads went into the ship's paper asking for toys. Charity begat more charity. By the way, that's so incredible. It reminds me of the ads in the ship's paper asking for toys. Reminds me of that scene from Airplane in which they sh- they have all the the, the spinning newspapers. <laughs> How can you have like ad- where are these people getting these toys from? You know, this is so unreal. Reagan concluded in the dark days after World War II, when our industrial power and military power were all that stood between a war ravaged world and a return to the dark ages. Pope Pius XII said, "America has a genius for great and unselfish deeds." Into the hands of, an, of America, God has placed the destiny of an afflicted mankind. I think those young men in the Midway have reassured God that he, with a capital H, hasn't given us more of an assignment than we can handle. And then my commentary is, in its years in Southeast Asia, the USS Midway had served as a death-dealing juggernaut, a launching pad for airstrikes responsible for killing thousands, perhaps millions of civilians, Listening to Ronald Reagan, you could imagine that its only role had been rescuing widows and orphans, that the entire war had been about rescuing widows and orphans. Others told you Vietnam was a crime, a waste, or at best something very complex. It took Ronald Reagan to explain how simple the whole thing was. Charity begetting more charity. How could it have happened any other way? Wow. So my book is a story of how that happened and how we bought that bill of goods. Yeah. Well, I mean it you know, I you could you know, he was good and, and if you heard and you probably yeah. heard these radio addresses. It's it's more I than did. just I mean, the soothing dulcet tone that he would deliver a speech and and with this kind of uh, overwhelming sense of warmth and good humor yeah. and friendliness you know you could you could be even people who were resistant to him as I was because I'd lived in California and I knew what he really yeah. was and so I kind of right. had a visceral loathing for the guy I'd get drawn into his spell I mean he was very very good and and I kind of wanted to bring up you know that you talk there's a lot in the book about Reagan's background in Hollywood and what what yeah. you know how he his story as he as he came up and you know I think it's fairly familiar to to most people um but one of the things that you highlight that I think is so interesting is how he developed this persona when he went to work for GE as a person right. who could give these inspirational speeches and what the background of that was and who his influences were there, right. because I think that's a kind of an unknown part of the Reagan right. history. You want to talk right. a little bit about that? Yeah, there's this guy named Lemuel Bulware who I've, um, when I was writing for the New Republic website, I called the most important American that no American has heard of. And what he was was he was the... Um, Top labor relations executive at General Electric, which for him basically meant a public relations uh, executive because he considered uh, labor relations an exercise in public relations that you had to basically teach the public and the workers, of which there were you know hundreds of thousands in this giant corporation, General Electric, 
that you know what looks to us like right wing conservative ideology was um, the best of all worlds and good for everyone, and that the unions uh, that had delivered America this mass middle class were actual kind of traducers of the American dream. And this guy, Lemuel Boulware, uh, got the job in the 40s, right after a giant strike that shuttered a lot of uh, General Electric's plants. And he's just a fascinating figure, and I detail this in the book, and there's a really quite good book uh, that I um, used uh, called uh, The Educational Ronald Reagan by a guy named Thomas Evans, who was a retired corporate lawyer who just kind of wrote this very good book. And by the way, he was Richard Nixon's former law partner, the guy who wrote this book about uh, Reagan at General Electric. Yeah, very unusual. And I, I didn't hear from him after I wrote a column saying how great his book was because I don't think he realized as a Republican, you know, um, that he wasn't supposed to the, – I don't think he, he drew the same lesson from this, shall we say. <laughs> but the guy Bulware was a very important guy in the 50s almost a household name, uh, because he basically taught working-class people how to hate unions, and he was brilliant at it. He used focus groups. Uh, he Every employee at, the General, at General Electric would get these pamphlets and magazines, um, and they actually produced a um, comic book version of uh, um, Hayek's uh, um, libertarian tract, The Road to Serfdom, uh, which, you know, argued that, you know, like basically every step towards um, social democracy was a step towards totalitarianism. And uh, in the 1950s, basically General Electric started this anthology program, 1954. You know, this is this genre in which there would be basically a different radio or TV play every week. And they needed a host. And they wanted a guy who was kind of this all-American guy to fit their all-American image. And they wanted him to also tour their factories to basically give inspiring pep talks to their employees and tell stories about what it's like being a star in Hollywood. And Ronald Reagan was perfect. He was his 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 um, his movie career was at a low ebb, so he kind of came cheap. This is when he was doing his uh, infamously bad. Uh, uh, Las Vegas Review that his own agent said had laid an egg. A very funny <laughs> picture of that in the book. And um, before long, he's um, giving these political speeches, too. And it's because he's really, um, he's, he's buying what Lemuel Bulware is selling. You know, he's, he's, he couldn't, he was afraid to fly. That's a fascinating detail. So he would take a super chief all the way around the all the way across the country, you know, so GE headquarters is connected to it. He would just read National Review. He would read The Road to Serfdom. He would read these pamphlets, and he was convinced. And this is what kind of taught him that, you know, he, he, he always saw the world in terms of heroes and villains and good guys and bad guys, that the good guys were the entrepreneurs, the good guys were the capitalists. Of course, you know, the executives that, General Electric hadn't been entrepreneurs for, you know, a good 50 years at that time. In <laughs> right. fact, they weren't really good. I mean, they were being indicted for price fixing, you know, uh, and they hated competition. Um, but before long, basically, the Mohawksman, that, you know, basically the little water message just 10 times more. And uh, 
how we enter the world. Famously, the week before Goldwater's landslide defeat, Ronald Reagan goes on TV and gives a speech for him that has people saying, why don't we make this guy the candidate? Right. And uh, he has these rich friends and rich backers who are suddenly boosting him for governor of California. It's an astonishing story. And one thing I'm very proud of uh, is that I really think I am the first historian to really give a convincing account of how Ronald Reagan uh, transformed from liberalism to conservatism. Well, t- yeah, talk a little bit about that because it is interesting. And, of yeah. course, his his early years in, in Hollywood are also very interesting. You know, he's, uh, he's quite yeah. the, um, you know, let's just put it this way. Uh, the moral majority may not be quite as intrigued if they if they had been around then they might not have found him quite as uh, much of a lovable character as he uh, as he wound up being. But I mean, how did he go from you know talk uh, about it in the book? And, pardon me. You mean the period between the two marriages? Is that what you mean? Yeah. You know. Oh, I'm just thinking <laughs> of the you know the the various you know he was he was well he was a Hollywood actor you know a typical Hollywood actor. Right. You know, not particularly right. worse oh, than anybody else. Anyways, too. Yeah, um, I had a lot of fun kind of researching the Hollywood star system and how that worked. And um, there's a wonderful book called, uh, that you'd love, called The Star Machine by a um, historian, film scholar at Wesleyan named Janine Bassinger. And it kind of explains how, you know, they turn these charismatic people into movie stars. And it also was the concept of explaining how Ronald Reagan never quite managed to become a movie star. Um, you know, in 1937, he, he, he's a very popular radio personality in the Midwest, and he comes out to Hollywood. And he does really well at first. Uh, he gets a lead role in a B-movie, whereas, whereas it usually took several movies before people even get really a speaking role. But tailspins after that. And he, he has these ups and downs, and it finally looks like he has his breakthrough with King's Row, which is a very good movie. And he kind of has found his type uh, as um, a former uh, rake who mends his ways and becomes a stout-hearted uh, hero. Uh, he plays a very similar role in Newt Rockne, All-American, where George Gipp is this kind of gambling, kind of uh, man about town and kind of ball- becomes a star. Uh, and then the martyr, and you know, went one for the Gipper and all that. And finally, he uh, parlayed that into um, Lou Wasserman, who's also a very fascinating figure. Uh, Lou Wasserman is an a- his agent and gets his first million dollar contract, Lou Wasserman's first million dollar contract. And it looks like he's really on the cusp of something great. And then World War One hits, and he had a terrible war. Basically, uh, Jack Warner wouldn't let him go over- overseas and become a war hero. He's stuck stateside. Training films, uh, and he's not even a star of the training film. Uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart becomes a major general and a war hero. You know, Van Johnson becomes a superstar because he can't go to war because he has a plate in his head. And, uh, uh, basically, seems to have had an affair with Jane Wyman, you know, Ronald Reagan's wife. <laughs> and uh, so, by the time the war's over, uh, he's just completely at the nadir of the Hollywood system. And that's really when he picks up politics, liberal politics, of course, and, you know, kind of never says no, it seems, to a chance to, you know, be the MC at some liberal dinner and 
gets involved with, you know, what were then called communist front groups and feels like he was duped and uh, gets involved in union politics. And um, there's a, a basically um, a very corrupt, uh, mobbed-up union that the, the studio bosses love because basically it's like a company union. And then there's a very idealistic left-wing union called the Conference of Studio Unions, which actually does great things for Hollywood actors and I mean, not Hollywood actors, for, for Hollywood crew members and get some great contracts, but the studios want them crushed. And uh, they basically red bait this very liberal, very progressive union. And Ronald Reagan becomes the cat's paw for this sabotage campaign against this progressive union that wasn't really communist at all. But uh, he's absolutely convinced that he's literally fighting for um, the future Western civilization by crushing this very progressive union, and um, he's still a liberal in 1948. Uh, he gives this amazing speech uh, to um, uh, for Hubert Humphrey, in which he says that all this inflation is caused by greedy corporations acting greedily, uh, and um, but at the same time, um, his marriage is falling apart. And later he meets this woman, Nancy Davis, uh, who makes a very interesting character, her and herself. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's a 60-page chapter. But uh, to make a long story short, uh, before, before long, he's um, completely reversed his ideology. But his, his style is still the same. They're good guys and they're bad guys. And he's going to, you know, uh, deliver for the good guys come hell or high water. It's interesting because I had never seen him before I read the book as I mean I knew this about him he was you know he was a the, a union president you know he was a head of a union he he had started that and you know he has famously said you know I didn't leave the Democratic Party the Democratic Party left me but yeah, I did not realize that that he had a real a genuine ideological flip-flop and and that cool. it was actually that 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 you know this was he was like you know, he had more of a personality, and explain something about him, of an apostate. You know, like a like yeah. you know, you see guys like David like Horowitz or people like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, he just which which sort of explains a certain kind of you know. There's always a, a very I don't know sort of a zealousness you about people who make right? it. Yeah. More, yeah, it's uh, just to the French thing. You know, more more Catholic than the Pope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I hadn't known that about him, and I didn't realize, you know, how that, you know, he he was, and because he had this good guy, bad guy, uh, you know, very kind of, you know, Manichaean view of everything, um, and it was sort of, it was colored by this whole cowboy ethos and all this other bullshit, you know, that that the Hollywood, basically, you know, the hit, Louis B. Mayer and his friends made this. <laughs> whole thing up, you know, it wasn't right. actually How real. He's invented Hollywood, right? Yeah, exactly. They, they, and they, he they invented the blonde starlet to prove that they're not really Jews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he actually, but he was a he was a believer in that stuff, and in fact, was right. able to. Easily it seems was. so. Though he was able to sort of convince himself, you know, that this that that this was right, and, and this hero this hero story. I mean, that metaphor that is a is a metaphor throughout the book of him in his younger years was allegedly and 
you know, had been portrayed mythically as a lifeguard who saved a bunch of lives. And you point out that that right. actually didn't ha- probably didn't happen, but you know, he well, continued maybe, to sort of not, see himself. Right? Well, it may not have happened, but you know, whatever it was, it was he Reagan as rescuer as the hero. Right was sort of something right. that, that, you know, by the time he got to this moment that you're discussing, you know, when bringing the book up to the to the moment in the book where he's starting to make his ascent, um, mm-hmm. he there's this feeling that, uh, you know, and I think he probably has this, as and I think maybe the people that were around him, the conservative movement that was looking for, you know, I mean, talk about a group of people looking for a hero, Um he was Work. he was the guy on the on the with the white hat who was coming to rescue America. The man on horseback. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was the guy. Now, you know, I mean, you know what they say about you know beware the man on horseback, and you know here he was. And I yeah. have to say, from my perspective, that's how it seemed to me, which was right. I just couldn't believe it. And that's another part of the book that I think is really fascinating. I mean, you need the 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 punditocracy. Oh, and this is a thread running through all of your books, <laughs> not just this right. one, but in this one it's particularly uh, obvious. Right. They are absolutely oblivious over and yeah. over and over again to what is actually yeah. going on. I mean, you cannot trust these people to have, if you're listening to them, and this is probably a big problem in the conservative movement now because they yeah. have this uh, this very, very elaborate punditocracy with TV stations and radio and everything. If you're listening to those people, they don't know what they're talking about, and it's pretty clear in the book. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about how wrong they were uh, about Reagan because, boy, were they ever wrong. Well, I mean, the last. <laughs> the last line of the book is um uh what is it um uh I'm just kind of flipping through acknowledgments 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 say nice things about Diggy uh and, oh, this is the last sentence <laughs> of the book at 65 years of age the New York Times noted he was too old to to consider seriously another run at the presidency this is you know <laughs> in August of 1976. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that just, you know, and they were all, I mean, they just, he couldn't possibly win, he's too dumb, he's too crazy, he's right. too extreme, you know, whatever, right. and completely ignoring Right, the... and they said that in 1966, too, right? Right, I mean, my, right. my, my favorite line is um, is uh, when uh, um, uh, um, Esquire, <laughs> he wins, he wins the, uh, the um, he wins the Republican nomination in 1966. And a, a columnist in the Washington Star, kind of a now defunct paper that was in some ways kind of more prestigious than the Washington Post even, uh, reported, quote, an air of furtive jubilation at Lassie for governor, governor headquarters. <laughs> and, and that's why I said the Republican Party isn't bankrupt or isn't that bankrupt that it has to turn to Liberace for leadership. Oh, my God. Do the kids know who Liberace is? You know, he was the beat uh, gay. What do they do? Because the Michael Douglas thing just this last year, they right, did a Liberace. Right, right. I think everybody knows so who he is again. Ronald Reagan is a joke. Ronald Reagan is a joke. Ronald Reagan is a joke. Didn't didn't he star in a movie with a chimpanzee? Right. Right. Uh, and uh, what they're not getting is, and then you know, like um, you know, it's over and over again. They just do not take um, the idea that there's a reactionary current in American politics uh, seriously. Um, you know, I found a, uh, a, a column from the summer of 1974 
uh, from this guy Joseph Kraft, who's basically kind of the Tom, one of the Thomas Friedmans of the day. Not a bad guy, by the way. He was liberal enough that he was actually wiretapped by uh, by Nixon. So <laughs> you know, not such a bad guy. And he really went after Nixon for Watergate. But you know, he was a pundit, right? And he, you know, had the biases of his of his group. And so they have um, a primary election in California in 1974, and he likes the guy who wins on the Republican side. He likes Jerry Brown, and he says, Reaganism has had it in California. Moreover, given California's record as political pace setter for the nation, the primary here may be handwriting on the wall for right-wing populism everywhere. Yeah, that worked out. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> recent developments in Detroit, Philadelphia, Minneapolis, and New York, as well as Los Angeles, just the decline of backlash mayors. Uh, uh, <laughs> conference in Seattle early last week, governors were lining up to be seen in opposition to Mr. Reagan, the other leading right-wing populist, George Wallace. That heralds the possibility of closing the parentheses on the era of backlash politics, with politics, which has been so strong in the country since Ronald Reagan wrote out of, rode out of the TV movies back in 1966. And this is like, you know, that fall is, you know, um, the, 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 the busing backlash in Boston and the textbook backlash in West Virginia. And, I mean, it's just, um, it, you know, it's, it's exactly what happened, you know, a couple months ago when the same – you know, basically the spiritual forebears of the same clowns were saying that the Tea Party was dead and the Republican right. establishment is back in the saddle. And, you know, any reader of Digby knows what, you know, nonsense this is. And then Eric Cantor has his butt handed to him, and that's it, you know? Yep. And, of course, they still insisted that it had nothing to do with any of the right-wing policies um, or, the, or the, you know, the resentment against uh, Cantor over things like immigration, for instance. There's this insistence over and over and over again that the things that you can see the, you know, revanchist right wing screaming about isn't real. They absolutely, that no, it, it, that is not what the problem is. There's something else going on. You know, he's about, it's about Washington or it's about this or, you know, it's about something else. It's all, and yet they're there screaming about it right in our faces over and over again, and people refuse to believe that's actually the issue. You know, I mean, obviously, for instance, you know, immigration now is going to be a big issue. It just is. And this has been a story that has been going on for, you know, literally centuries. And yet... <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. Well, yeah, I mean, and yet... Guard their enclave against the outsider, you know, it's human nature. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, you know, this is the group. This is where it's coming. We just saw the same way that, you know, you, you as you describe in the book, and, in fact, I wrote a, a piece for Alternet in which you, you, you know, um, generously granted me the uh, the the right to excerpt a little piece from your book just before it was published. And it, it – in which you know about the the uh, South Vietnamese and how the people in right. California were disease, 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 yeah. disease, down there in Murrieta, California, probably very near the same congressman's district. We had in that, in that week yeah. a bunch of of you know conservative white right wing Americans with signs screaming about these kids coming you know coming over the border with disease. Yeah. 
And so, yeah. you know, this is this is a story that no matter how many times you tell it and no matter how obvious it is, for reasons that, that absolutely elude me, I mean, I, do you think it's this this Pauline Kael thing where I don't know a single person who oh. voted for him? I mean, is that is that what this is, that these people just don't know anybody who actually believes this stuff? So... Well, I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, it's it's such a bizarre and endlessly fascinating thing, right? Because they're so solicitous in other ways of kind of right wing reaction. Um, I mean, when the Tea Party came along, they welcomed it because they thought that they finally found this like kind of grassroots allies in their campaign for deficit hawkery, right? Um, <laughs> right, you're so, right. You know, they there was, they there will... was that nonsense about how the Tea Party wasn't really, you know, like. It had nothing to do with the Christian right and had nothing to do with right wing right. you know, uh, racism and you know. Right, they were against the capital gains tax. You know, this was a grassroots yeah, group yeah. against the capital gains tax, you know. Jeez. I mean it's you know. it's kind of endlessly fascinating to me. Um I mean, obviously I've spent, you know, my career chewing over this. Um uh, I mean it's a certain kind of enlightenment set of values, right? That kind of like you know, humanity is going to make progress towards reason and turn away from uh, superstition. But there's also that weird fetishization of kind of religion by the, you know, Sally Quinn. And um, and, and then, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the kind of um, faith in the marketplace. So, you know, it has all these really weird kind of right-wing and left-wing elements. And it's, it's such a, um, you know, did you... The interesting study that shows basically the, the, amount of, the number of people who kind of act, actually answer to kind of uh, an ideology that resembles libertarian is, I think it was from Pew, something like 4%. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I right. did. It yeah. Just, yeah, just so, so it, 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 So it's, it's this really kind of weird kind of conjuries of kind of ideological grab bags that represents like eight or nine Americans, but they all have jobs <laughs> to watch the post, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't and, know. We think it's the bottom of this. I know, Maybe it's very strange. And yet I think you and I agree, and I think it was one of the reasons why we sort of um, kind of connected strongly, is this idea that this back and forth between, you know, sort of liberal progress and then, and then you know, conservative reaction um, – I mean, that really defines America, and it defines it more right. than in most societies. I mean, this is a yeah. very, very clear pattern. And, it's you know, it really goes back to the, the DNA. You know, once they decide we're going to have a country in which, you know, each of these southern states, no matter how small, is going to have two senators, you know, this was just basically um, decide, deciding that feudalism was always going to have a place in American life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It It is, uh, you know, it is as American as it gets. And I think maybe that's one reason why the two of us, I think, you know, I don't look at, I mean, the right wing, of course, they're, you know, they're they're scary people in a lot of ways. And I really... Scary people, right? It's the enablers that? that fascinate us. There's always yeah. going to be scary reactionary people. It's, it's the enablers that really fascinate us. Exactly. They're the ones, you know, these and, 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 and the exploiters, you know, they're there to kind of, I mean, and, and of course the right wing has an entire industry that's built up around it, which is very, very interesting. I mean, that's I mean, a, whole, right. a whole subject in itself. Uh, and, and in your book, you see the beginnings of that really starting to coalesce. It's kind of coming out of the neighborhood, you know, the nice little neighborhood right. get it's book like they, clubs. They, they find, 
you know, we or, you know, Vigory says we organize discontent, and you can just yeah. kind of see them kind of scanning the horizon. You know, it's like, wow, they don't care about the capital gains tax. Well, this, 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 this um, you know, this, um, the all these um, municipal uh, gay rights organ- ordinances will do. You know, yeah, and then we'll get our Republicans elected, and they'll they'll cut the capital gains tax. You know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. that's cynical. You know. It- yeah, it's it, it is that cynical, and in fact, they and 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 it actually became sort of a self-perpetuating thing where you know these people make a lot of money at this. They actually the, the industry yeah. itself is profitable, yeah. you know, beyond selling the ideology, and you know, and there were always going all the way back some very wealthy Americans who saw the potential here to yeah. gather that, you know, that discontent, yeah. that reaction. Yeah. You know, it's and it's very interesting. I mean, I think that, that you and I both kind of see this. You know, I look at these at these right-wingers, and, you know, I, I'm, it's disturbing the amount of, of guns that we have in our culture currently. This mm-hmm. is kind of, it's becoming rather uh, frightening that we're fetishizing guns to the degree that we are. We used to have a little more common sense about it. But under, yeah. beyond that... That kind of scary element, which I think is kind of injecting something new into this into yeah. this pattern yeah. that we've had. Yeah, well, we um, used to call that fascism, right? When when people with guns try to take over the politics. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you talk about this. You know, you've talked about this in in your in your writing. Um, you know, for for the Washington Post, for instance, you wrote a piece talking about how, and and I wrote about this at the time too, how bizarre it is to have people with guns at political events and right. their idea that this is absolutely a political act yes. and you see it all the time the Constitution, so people wouldn't have to settle disputes you know by force of arms right, right. but i mean their 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 constitutionalism is literally anti-constitutional so Jay, yeah. we just have a couple of minutes left i want to ask you a question um, i want to hear your 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 reflections on this backlash against me and and kind of my attempt to kind of historicize reagan well, I think you know. I mean, actually, it was yeah, Dave Weigel. Lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I'm for those who don't know, there, you know, there's a a Republican operative out there by the name of Craig Shirley, and he is a real Republican operative. I'm not just you know giving him that he's name. The guy who uh, he, the podium with Paula Jones when she accused Clinton yeah. of rape. He's the real thing. I mean, he's one of those guys. And he, where he has a PR firm. He, he has clients, you know, from Ann Coulter to, you know, I don't know, Roger Stone. I mean, various, various people involved in, in um, the right wing, you know, what we call wing nut welfare. But the right wing industrial complex, uh, he is an integral part of it and has been. He's also uh, a, quote, Reagan biographer. Uh, Rick. I like his book. Yeah. He wrote a book about Reagan. And, and Rick actually, con, you know, read the book, consulted with him, talked to him, and credited him throughout <laughs> for various things that he found in, in this guy Craig Shirley's book. Well, Shirley, uh, you know, as an as a indignant biographer, accused Rick of plagiarism for using the, you know, parts of his book and acknowledging them as historians and other writers have done forever. Um, uh, That's just part of this part of the process. And so this caused a minor brouhaha on, on the right. I I sense that this has actually died down a bit. I mean, what's important to understand though about that, at least in my opinion, 
is that this came from, you know, and Dave Weigel coined this little phrase, which I think is actually quite fitting. You know, when you wrote about Barry Goldwater, you know, he was he was a, a minor saint. You wrote about Nixon, the martyr, but this time you you wrote about God. And you know, uh, when you start when you write about God, you're going to get a little bit of a backlash. And in my view. What you said about Reagan was not – you did not indict him in any way. None of this – you know, right. it, it, this is not, a, 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 you know, a, an attack on Ronald Reagan. I mean, they have to understand that. What they're afraid of is that you write this kind of uh, history that is, you know, it's, it's, it has well, no. this sort of cultural um, currency – that I think they find very threatening to their project of uh, deifying Ronald Reagan, um, and not because you go, you know, you go directly at him and hack him to pieces, but because by revealing him the way you do, you also reveal them. I don't think that they that they can mm. take that. I think it's a little mm. bit too close to home. What mm. you're doing is I'm you're showing them, that. and you're not even really that. unfriendly to them, but you are a bit, uh, you know, you're hard on the vigories and, you know, the CPAC people and that kind of thing. I mean, you're not insulting or, or in any way, you know, unduly hostile, but you reveal them for what they are. And I think that people feel that your books, I mean, they've been taken seriously by conservatives all the way along. It's not as if you were somebody that they had dismissed as some kind of a liberal hack in the past. They were friendly to your work, even though you're clearly you know, of the liberal persuasion, but you've always been very fair, and you're fair to Reagan in this too, and even somewhat sympathetic to him, as as you were to to Nixon and to Goldwater. Just you know, once you get in there, you these people are—they're not gods and they're not devils. They're human beings, and they are people who are fascinating and have their good points and their bad points, and you reveal all of that. But I think that it, I think that when they saw this. You know, you you kind of homing in now on the the genesis of the the conservative movement growing into this industry, seeing the way that it's kind of uh, metastasized into a political force that kind of does no longer does not have the moral center of the grassroots group that came out of Goldwater. I think that yeah. is a very threatening thing to them. I mean, that's just my opinion. I, I do find it interesting that yeah. they hadn't done it before, and this one for whatever reason, got him. And I don't think it's an accident that it happened at the hand of someone who is a clear political operative. I mean, yes, he happened to be a Reagan biographer, but I don't think that's where that came from. I think it came from his 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 day uh, job, if you know what I mean. Well, Digby, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop in because we're yeah. out of time. Uh, just three things I'd like to say. First off, I think that the plagiarism story died when the public editor at the New York Times, uh, Margaret Sullivan, decried it, that decreed that it was dead. The second thing I'd say is that one of the things that they find so threatening, I think, is the directness and clarity of Rick's prose. He writes in a way that um, doesn't bespeak any – there's no bullshit in it, I guess is what I would say. It's written in a very clear and very hard-to-refute way, and I think that's scary to them. The third thing is I would make two plugs. First off, if you want to read about how the myth grew, it's important to read Will Bunch's book, um, the yeah, Tear Down This Myth. It's a great yeah. book. It's written very, it's a very funny book in some ways, but he really documents how we went from the Reagan who governed to the Reagan who we worship, and it's a very yeah. different Reagan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I said, like, it's fascinating. Will's book kind of shows that 
everything we like about Reagan was when he was a liberal, when he acted like a liberal <laughs> when he was president. And everything, every time, every time, he, time he acted like a conservative, it, 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 you know, like by instituting supply side economics, it was a total failure. Right. And I would also like to remind folks that Digby's writing for Salon now. I uh, actually ran into um, into Joan Walsh at uh, at Rick's book party here, and she's very, very happy to have Digby writing for her, and I think she should be. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And the last thing, Rick, is I was asking you a question that I've been wondering about for a long time. When Glenn Greenwald was on one of our shows, he, he marked the demarcation point between accountability for our presidents to the pardon of Nixon. Yeah. Do you think, that, do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just kind of not to scoop myself, I'm I'm writing about that. I'm gonna have a uh, op-ed, hopefully, um, in the Times uh, for the 40th anniversary of uh, the pardon. I said my you know my phone rang off the hook with people wanting to talk to me about uh, Nixon's resignation. But to me, the the real moment that really shaped our politics was uh, the pardon, and I completely agree that. That was just kind of like um, the elite basically signaling that you could kind of get away with anything as long as you said that, you know, to kind of uh, prosecute uh, a crime would be divisive or, you know, we should look forward instead of backward and all the rest. So, yeah, uh, I agree, and uh, I'll have more to say about that soon. Great. Um, so we should wrap up. Digby, thank you so much for doing this. We're very grateful to you. Rick, thanks for joining us. Um, folks, do get the book. And this, by the way, is a good opportunity to get it on Audible if you want to use the Virtually Speaking audio link. That's okay. virtuallyspeaking.com slash audible is where you can find the, uh, the audible version of this book. And it's a big book, so it's a good book to listen to. Yeah. Um, and that's it, I think. That's all we got. So thank you so much for joining us, folks. We'll see you next time. I'm going to put up, I've already put up Rick's uh, interview with us for Nixon Land. If you want to go back a little bit in the archives, you're back a couple of weeks. And uh, I think that was actually a great conversation as well. And, you know, that was after Santana and I was decided the best person to review Rick's book was uh, George Will. <laughs> later on, man. So we'll talk to you later. Thank you very much, folks. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.